everyone. I'm Lydia. And I'm Sara. And this is Hitchcock Happy Hour. Where we analyze a film by the master of suspense himself. One Hitchcocktail at a time. Cheers. everybody to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I am Sara. And I'm Lydia. <laughs> and we're super excited today um, because we're going to be discussing super fun movie. Lydia, what are we discussing today? Today we're talking about 1964 Marnie. I don't know why I yes. said it like that, but yes. <laughs> it is one word, one name, two syllables. Marnie. Get it straight. <laughs> Um, but obviously, before we get into all of the super wild, weird details of this very strange but very good movie, uh, Lydia, again, why don't you tell us what we're drinking today? Well, today we're having something a little bit different, and I'm super excited about it. It has nothing to do with this movie, except for the fact that there is a boat scene, and that's... that's... why I thought you picked it. <laughs> no, I just really like this cocktail. <laughs> Wow, she made a cool connection with a the yeah. theme. I love that. Anyways, yeah, I totally did it on purpose. So today we're having a Starboard Sour. <laughs> it's really it's good. It's super good. It's an Empress Gin cocktail, which if you've never had Empress Gin, it's super cool because it's like blue. And then when you add um, anything acidic, it turns purple. So it's like yeah. this cute little lavender color because it's, it's just a couple ingredients. It's lime... Mm gin, Empress Gin, and then coconut milk, and a little bit of sweetener of your choice. They recommend vanilla. We didn't do that because... Neither of us did that. We never follow directions. (laughs) We don't. And this time it was for our benefit because you've tried it with vanilla and you said it was really weird, so... To be fair, I I didn't have, like, proper vanilla syrup, and I feel like vanilla extract is too strong. It kind of tasted like tapioca pudding, which, like, if you're into that, like, get it, but, like, I wasn't. So. You're spiked, gin spiked. Ooh, <laughs> maybe we're on no, to something. <laughs> it's so yummy, and um, you probably already knew this, but I was told, shout out again to Robin, my coworker. <laughs> we were just Googling this uh, gin today, because she's been to this hotel. It's actually from the Empress Hotel in Victoria, mm-hmm. and she's been here and has had like multiple cocktails at the bar. And she was telling me that it's the reason that it's this like indigo color is because it's made with uh, pea blossom flower, mm-hmm. which I think that's really cool. It's, so it's like, you know, juniper is usually like the um, herb that's really forward in gin drinks. But this one, I think, it, I, mean, assume, I assume it has juniper in it because it's gin, but it has uh, pea blossom flower, which you can really yeah. taste, actually. No, you totally good. can. And if you're not like a huge gin person, I feel like this could be like a good, like, getting into it gin because I would say that this one is definitely more like botanical and floral than like a London dry gin which I feel like it's where people complain about gin tasting like a Christmas tree <laughs> I don't think that's <laughs> gonna be a problem with this one because <laughs> this is no, like it's, that's be refreshing it's, yeah it's definitely not the vibes it's kind of like a tropically vibe without it being sweet which is fun because like I love tropical drinks mm-hmm. but I hate sweet drinks well like, and I like the flavors yeah and now that I'm like over 25 if I have any sugary <laughs> drink I literally am like instantly hungover so this is great <laughs> yeah this is great and it's coconut 
milk, so it's super, mm-hmm. it's like super refreshing. I've um, already downed half of my drink. Same! We, <laughs> we just started, so buckle up, everybody. <laughs> but, um, should we get into <laughs> you could have seen my hand gestures it was like an aggressive like let's rock motion yeah that was was something else something i've never seen you do that's called half of a starboard sour later and we're ready we're ready to get going we're ready to rock and roll i guess as one would say that we are but shall we jump into it i mean there's so much to i feel like there's so much to talk about oh there is so much to talk about let's do it (laughs) <laughs> Alrighty, well, Marnie is a 1964 American psychological thriller directed by our friend Alfred Hitchcock. Spoiler! Spoiler! Surprise! Alfred Hitchcock. Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. In a wild turn of events, we're doing a movie directed it's by It's never been Alfred done before Hitchcock. on this podcast. <laughs> um, Okay. So the screenplay is by J. Preston Allen and is based on the 1961 novel The Same Name written by Winston Graham. The film stars our friend Tippi Hedren and mm. Sean Connery. Mm. I love Sean Connery. Perfection. And yeah. Marnie marks the end of a very specific period of Hitchcock's career. It's the last film that he made with cinematographer Robert Burks, who oh. has been on every film up until this point from Strangers on a Train to Marnie. Oh, wow, so, so a long time. Yeah, starting in 1951 till 1964, as well as editor George Tomasini, who started with Rear Window in 1954, and he died four months after Marnie's release. It's also the last movie starring a true Hitchcock blonde. Oh, so Tippi Hedren is the last mm-hmm. true Hitchcock blonde. Yep. Interesting. And it's also the last collaboration between Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann, they oh made God. yeah seven films together um from the trouble of harry to marnie um and so in a lot of ways this is like a pretty you know it's like kind of the end of an era i would say for hitchcock and it has everything it he threw literally everything everything in, in the it. kitchen sink <laughs> is in this movie <laughs> yeah um pretty much and you know it's really funny and like Obviously, I'm sure we're going to talk about this. I'm sure you have a lot to say about it. But I, while I was watching this movie, it's I've never seen a movie where I've been like, wow, this is like this movie didn't age well, but it's also super progressive, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. But, like there's a lot about it where I'm just like, oh, oh, my God, this is like really uncomfortable. But then there's a lot about it where I'm like, wow, I can't believe they were talking about this in like this move in like this time period in a movie from this time period. But uh, yeah, I mean, it is yeah. very interesting because I think there's a lot of things in this film that to your point are very progressive. I mean, I think they're still framed in like a very like Freudian way. So oh, it's like, yeah. oh, there's not as progressive <laughs> Freud up the, you know. Freud is written all over this movie. All I mean, over. Yeah. yeah, so it's very, yeah. like, in some ways I would say it's a little bit, like, trite, you know what I mean? But in a lot of other ways, I think that what they are trying to do is is very interesting. And I also mm-hmm. think that it's, this is definitely coming to the end of the Hayes Code. Like, I don't think, oh, yeah. I don't think that this movie would have been able to fly, like, earlier um, so it's, like, pretty interesting, like, what they're able to include, um, what isn't included but implied, because it's pretty dark. 
It is, and I think it's so funny, like, obviously, you know, after we did our pretty in-depth discussion on the Hayes Code, watching movies after having done all that research, yeah. you and I and people maybe that have listened can point out things in Hitchcock movies and be like, oh, that's interesting, like, clearly this is post-Hayes Code, or this is during Hayes Code, yeah. and they did this because of the Hayes Code, or they didn't have the Hayes Code to, like, abide by anymore, so they could do these things, Yeah, just, totally. I mean, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but the way this movie ends is just very much, like, that would not have flown in the Hayes Code. Time, so, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everything about this movie wouldn't have flown in the disco time, but um, like also specifically about the movie ending. But um, it, I, yeah, it's really fascinating. And I, to be like, just to be clear, I actually really liked this movie. Like, yeah. I really enjoyed watching it. I thought it was there's some problematic stuff in it, but um, the subject matter and the way that they discuss it, and I think the acting performances are really good in this movie. Yeah, the acting in this film is amazing. The characters are like really interesting and super complex. All in all, it's a great, like, psychological thriller. Um, but before we do dive in, we just wanted to give a little, like, there a trigger warning before we get too far. There is um, instances of sexual assault and rape, so um, please listen at your own discretion. Yes. All Thank right. you for that. You're welcome. And with that, well, let's just, let's just start with the cast really quickly. So we have Tippi Hedren as our girl Margaret Marnie Edgar. Sean Connery, our favorite mm. Brit, as Mark mm. Rutland. Diane Baker as Lil, which... Yeah. What is that name? Like, <laughs> Also, who... That bitch. First of all. Yeah, she's a hoe for sure. She's... <laughs> Lil is... Lil is, like... She... Yeah. Lil has, like, problems. Like, I don't... I have my issues with Lil. She's oh. so annoying. She looks... Her... I don't know what... Like, if they cast this actress because of the way she looked, but she has the most conniving look on her face at all times. Yeah. Like, I'm like, anytime they trust her to do anything, I'm like, why would you trust Lil with that task? With that face? Like, yeah. she's not yeah, hiding she, it well. <laughs> she's not. She's also, like, actively pursuing her dead sister's widow, and she's, like, 18, and he's, like, 30, <laughs> so. I mean, uh, hey. Probably older than 30, actually, he's probably, like, 40, but... Do you, uh, girl? <laughs> I guess, but Lil needs to really take no, a seat. No, Lil know. for sure needs to chill. She is the worst. Um, Lil needs to chill. Lil needs to chill, and you heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Um, all right, we have Martin Gable, who's Sydney Strutt. This is Marnie's ex-boss. It's not really that interesting, but I felt like those. Are, there's not like a lot of characters in this film, so. No, but he is the one that she steals from first. Yeah, exactly. And then Alfred Hitch Hitchcock's cameo is like five <laughs> minutes into the film. Um, he's seen entering from the left of a hotel corridor as Marnie passes by. So it's a pretty good one too. Like it really is a good obvious. one. It's yeah. pretty obvious. I was like, oh hey, <laughs> hey buddy, hey buddy, what you doing? Hey friend, <laughs> you look a little flushed. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it because this was a wild ride in a lot of ways. Okay. It's a wild ride just watching this movie. I think that's one thing about it, though, is, like, you're pretty much on the edge of your seat the entire time. Yeah. No, I it's really way. good. No, I definitely, like, you don't quite know what's going to happen, and it is interesting because I think it kind of deals with some of the same issues as some of his other films, but it does it in a much different way. Like, there is kind of, like, some psycho elements, I would say, and even some kind of allusions even in the script, but I think they're able to be a little bit more direct about it than they were, you know, even just a couple years earlier. Yeah, totally to your point, I think this movie is such a testament to, like, if Psycho were 
to come out, you know, only four years after it did like this, how much more gruesome and how much more into the site, like the psychotic nature of Norman Bates would they have been able to go? Because this movie is like, it doesn't really hold back in terms of the trauma and PTSD and kind of psychotic break that can be caused by like repressed sexual trauma from childhood, basically, which is what the movie's about. (laughs) So super lighthearted and with that (laughs) we dive into the summary here we go okay so the movie opens as a woman with dark hair we only see her from behind so we don't know what her face looks like she's carrying a suitcase along a train platform um a lot of people suggest that the purse like tucked under her arm is like presented at an angle that's like very suggestive of female genitalia so that kind of just like sets things up like from the get-go um, and then in the next scene, an outraged business owner, Sidney Strutt, who's played by Martin Gable, is ranting to a pair of detectives that he was cleaned out by a female employee named Marion Holland, whom he obviously hired for her looks despite her lack of professional references. So this guy, when I was watching the scene, <laughs> is very reminiscent of the lecherous Texan. Oh my psycho. god, very, very reminiscent. Yeah. Yeah, and he's presented in the same kind of way. It's like a boss or some type mm-hmm. of benefactor of a company, like in the beginning of the movie, who's very wealthy with and like is just like talking about his misogyny, basically. Yeah, oh, and oh, you know gross. he's only mad because he got like taken advantage of. You know what I mean? Yeah. He doesn't want to be yeah. made to be look to look stupid, but he's like literally the world's biggest a hole. He's the worst. Well, he well they point out they're like, so you hired this woman with zero with zero references, references. and he's like, look. Okay, like we didn't, she didn't need references actually, just kidding. Like he's like, yeah, it's so yeah, funny. He's, he's dumb. He's big dumb dumb. <laughs> he's the worst. But yeah. m- meanwhile, a client of his, Mark Rutland, who's played by Sean Connery, kind of overhears this conversation and says that he remembers this woman and he wryly refers to her as the brunette with the legs. So mm-hmm. that kind of sets it up. We still haven't seen Marnie's face. But the woman, whose real name is Marnie Edgar, is a compulsive thief and has made off with almost $10,000 stashed in the yellow purse. Um, fun fact, the $9,767 that she steals oh God, equates everything. to... Wait, guess. I want you to guess how much it is. Um, okay, so we're in 1964, 9700 and how much? 67. Not that it matters because I'm not going to get it right. Yeah. Now. Okay, so um, I'm going to... My final guess, I'm going to lock it in. My answer is... Uh, $25,000. So, it, <laughs> a little low because it's actually almost $85,000. Oh, I was way off. <laughs> damn, Marnie. I mean, $10,000 is like a nice round number. I mean, yeah. you don't really... 85 grand. 85 grand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, meanwhile, she changes her appearance. She goes from a brunette to a blonde. So, that's why she's a Hitchcock blonde in this film. And she flees with the cash, journeying to a town in Virginia where she keeps her beloved horse, Forio, which, fun fact, Forion is Greek, is like Greek for stolen goods. So there's like a little... Oh, little, oh that's really yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, Marnie. I yeah. see you. Anyway, so he's stable there. Um, and she like takes him for a ride and then she visits her mother, Bernice, which... Like, what a what an oh. old-timey name, Bernice, but also her mom's, like, the worst. <laughs> the biggest bitch of all time. Worst I mean, mother, you can obviously. see why this girl has so many issues. That's when you're like, oh, yeah. oh yes. <laughs> yeah. And she, like, hates the little 
kid that the mom, like, babysits. Yeah, so her mom is, like, lavishing... So she's lavishing her mom with, like, these expensive gifts in, like, an attempt to impress her and win her love. Like, meanwhile, like, her mom's super cold and distant and shows more affection to the neighbor girl that she babysits than to Mm -hmm. her own daughter. So you can see Marnie's, like, intense jealousy, um, which feels, like, kind of inappropriate, but you also, like, get it. Um... Mm -hmm. And then she, like, has this, like, weird panic attack over a bouquet of red gladiolas um, and her mother's insistence that decent women don't need men. Um, So we can, like, we're starting to see that there's, like, a pattern of dysfunction that's, like, kind of starting to appear. So we're, like, okay, maybe, but, like, we get why she's, like, stealing. Like, she clearly has, like, a troubled past, you know? Yeah, but we don't, at this point, we're not sure why. Like, we know that she's triggered by something that's red, possibly flowers, because this is the first time we see it. And then um, her mom is, like, extremely cold and distant to her. and Super is, like, cold. And, yeah, to the point where I think in this point Marnie's, like, she says something to the effect of, like, why didn't, why don't you ever love me or why didn't you ever love me? Because she's seeing how much she's showing affection to the little yeah. girl that she babysits. And then her mom kind of just brushes it off and doesn't really answer the question because the mom is, like, baking a pie for the little girl and yeah. all these things. We see Marnie... Um, kind of reverting back to these like behaviors of a little of child, a child. yeah. Like she's trying to like lean on her mom's knee, and her mom's like, "You're making my knee ache. Like, get off of me." And, yeah, like, she won't touch her, and like all these things. And um, yeah. So we, you can tell at this point, like, okay, there's like she clearly has like some issue and some trauma that we don't know what it is, but like there's something going on between Marnie and her mom that is maybe mm-hmm. like gonna cause some problems for Marnie in the future. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think the acting in this scene is, like, 10 out yeah. of 10, too. Like, oh, it's yeah. so believable. It's so good. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. You feel it. You feel like you you want Marnie to get that love, you know, from well, her Well, you do, and, and it's so interesting because mm-hmm. I... And I think we, you know, we can discuss this throughout, like, each scene because it's a little bit different, but when you're watching this movie, and really until the very end, you're kind of like... Okay, Tippy Hedren is making some like weird acting choices with like random like her in like her like the way she uses like <clears throat> different like the way she uses different like tonal like voice changes mm-hmm. and the way that she kind of just like yells randomly a lot and you're like, "Oh, that's kind of like weird acting." Yeah. And then you think like, "Okay, whatever, it's like the 60s and you're equating it to just like maybe she's not the best actress." But then once you kind of get the full story, you're like, "Oh, no." She is having childlike outbursts. Like, that's, yeah. she, the acting is actually very, very subtle and really on point throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah, it's, like, super evolved, and it's kind of... It's what I wish had happened in Vertigo. Yes, I absolutely agree. And looking at this, and that's a really good point that you make, and I hadn't thought about this until right now, is what would Vertigo have looked like if Tippi Hed- someone like Tippi Hedren or Janet Lee was playing... Um, the character, Madeline, the character. In yeah, because yeah. I just feel like she's able to, like, again, like, the choices she makes are noticeable enough that you as the audience are kind of like, that's a weird choice. Like, that felt uncomfortable or that just felt like it stood out more. And you're like, that feels like maybe almost like bad acting. But then once you start to kind of unfurl the layers of this movie, then you're mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, like, she's actually really harnessing, like, this repressed trauma and like channeling what that how that could manifest itself so it's like super interesting and I think she yeah yeah, again like her performance is super believable even when it's like a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit weird it's like you still trust that like yeah you still trust the process I feel like whereas in Vertigo like there were breaks where it was like 
you just felt uncomfortable and like it felt like it was lacking a little bit and I didn't feel like that with this film I felt that way in Vertigo I think that I I liked Kim Novak's performance as the the blonde like the first part of the movie when she's playing Madeline and then in the second part when she was playing like her like quote-unquote herself yeah um, and whose character name I don't remember but that part I was like okay this kind of fell flat because you can't like you're not really getting the duality in the way yeah. of the performance whereas here you really are I feel like I feel like you're really getting like and you kind of start to unfold it as the movie's unfolding it because in the beginning you're like mm-hmm. oh that's really random that she's just like fluctuating her tone like that that's a weird acting choice but then you're like oh no like this is part of the character like the mm-hmm. character's making these choices and I think the one way one way that it really stands out which I'm sure we'll get get to is that Sean Connery plays Mark Rutland like very um consistent throughout the movie like it's very like monotone. it's super straight yeah, yeah. It's super straight and not in a bad way, like, he, he's a fantastic actor as well mm-hmm. and plays the character really well, but I think that with Marnie, like, the contrast of kind of Marnie's erratic behavior throughout the whole movie, you kind of, be, you kind of like, are able to unfold the story, like, a lot cleaner. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, like, his consistency and kind of his even keel really, like, allows her performance to then be, yeah. like, extra. Yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> But yeah, in this scene with her mom, it's pretty chaotic. Like, everybody's pretty chaotic in this whole scene. Yeah, it's a wild scene. I, like, felt uncomfortable. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> we need to leave. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, so she steals this money. Time has gone by at this point, and she's constructed a new identity, Mary Taylor. And her intent is to scam another victim, essentially. So she applies for a new job at a printing company in Philadelphia, who's owned by none other than our friend Sean Connery, a.k.a. in this film, Mark Rutland. Mark. Mark. Marky Mark. Marky Mark. So she now has chestnut hair. So there's that. And he recognizes her as the woman who stole from Strut, but he's kind of excited by the thrill of the chase and capturing kind of this, like, attractive criminal, so he hires her. And he doesn't tell her that he... And he doesn't... Yeah, exactly. He doesn't... He keeps that to himself, but he kind of has his eyes on her and is obviously kind of aware that she'll probably try to rip him off. So he asks her to work over the weekend, and so while working overtime with him, she has a panic attack during a thunderstorm... He comforts her and then kisses her, um, and they start to the kind most of... close up Ugh. kiss I've ever so... seen. My time. I was like, ew. <laughs> like... Also, like huge emphasis on he kisses her. She does not kiss him back. <laughs> no, she's kind of just like limp, and it's, yeah. well, it's she's having she's like in the middle of. Well, a she's having attack. a panic attack, so it's yeah. completely inappropriate. But uh... I mean, it works. She calms down. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Or. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very uncomfortable yeah. kiss. Like I, it's felt. like the most intense thunderstorm like I've ever seen. Though, like, like it like shatters the window. It shatters a the window. There's like a limb that like flies through. Like it's wild. Yeah, I would also be having a panic attack probably, and I don't really have any repressed trauma <laughs> from my childhood. It's the branch, so. Sarah. The branch. The branch. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a super intense thunderstorm. But anyways, during this panic attack he kind of like learns that she suffers from these bad dreams and that there's like something going on with the color red like she's seeing these colors that she's kind of talking about during this panic attack and then once she able she's able to kind of come down from it she like doesn't really remember it but um he kind of realizes that this color red can kind of be this like extreme emotional trigger for her yeah he figures it out really quick yeah he does which 
good for him. I almost kind of wish that they like waited just like a little bit to give us, but I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter because yeah. we don't, we still don't understand why it triggers her, but. Yeah, I think at this point, so we know, at, I think at this point, if you want to think about it as like a checklist, like we know that the color red triggers her and we know that some th- type of some, like thunderstorms trigger her mm-hmm. and we know based on like the fact that the first time we saw her have her thing with the color red her mom was talking about like you don't need men yeah that, that might be some type of correlation like something might have happened there but we still we still but that's kind of fleeting unless you kind of like have seen the movie you might not pick up on that but yeah um we yeah at this point it's like the color red and thunderstorms we know are like big triggers for her absolutely so at this point she also robs rutland Mm -hmm. but he's anticipated this so he manages to track her down and instead of handing her over to the police he blackmails her into marrying him which is always the best way to start a marriage yeah it is wonderful (laughs) i think like prior to this too like one I don't know what really the point of the scene was other than maybe showing that she has robbed multiple people when they're at oh, the, the horse race oh, yeah. together. And that guy, like the random guy comes up and is like, hey, aren't you so-and-so? And she's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, no, you're definitely like this woman that I've met. And, he's, and she's like, no, I'm not. And then like Sean Connery's character comes over and is like, hey, like leave her alone. She clearly yeah. doesn't know you. And then she ha- she sees like something they go to watch a horse and then she sees something and has like I think she sees the jockeys like the red jersey yeah and then has like a panic attack and then they leave and that scene was very like long (laughs) felt like it was very randomly it felt very randomly long because that's that's before they get in the car right and then he blackmails her yeah yeah that's before I think that is just to like show maybe that she's like robbed other people and also that she she does kind of like Mark like it that there's like kind of a growing romance between them because then he take he takes her to like his dad's estate basically to like introduce like time passes kind of quickly and they're like kind of dating at this point and she kind of likes him and then he decides like to tell her that he's actually gonna blackmail her because he knows that she's <laughs> he's like cool, cool cool now that you've met my family I think it's time that we have a little conversation where I blackmail yeah. you in a car. <laughs> Yeah, and then they stop for coffee, and then they continue the blackmail over coffee. It's so awkward. I'm just <laughs> like, weird. yeah, there were some weird choices. Yeah. Some weird choices during, the, I would say, this part of the film. But anyways, yeah. so he he woos her with a six and a half carat ring. He does. Valued at $42,000 in 1964 money. So how much do you think that that is in 2021 okay. money? Well, now that I have a better gauge, so 10000 is 80000 85000 So I don't know. I'm going to say upwards of like three hundred two, maybe upwards of 300000 Yeah, great guess. Three, so 350000 350. Is it really? Yes. yes. Nailed yes. it. Which, I can do math. You're like, Shout I can do it. Well, good for you because I can't. So quick, well, quick tangent, quick sidebar. That one time that you and I were in the kitchen, um, and we had to like figure out some measurement for you for like a project you were doing, but neither of us had our phones like near us. I'm like, it's fine. We can just do like a no. times table. No, neither of us could do it, and no. it was it was like a huge wake up call. It was actually like super embarrassing, and I think regularly about like if I ever have children and like they need help with math, like we're all screwed. Like, yeah, I'm happy. 
having really a bad funny. time. They're having like nobody's gonna have a good time. I just remember <laughs> it not even being like a difficult number. No, like, it was like it was like no, a, it wasn't. It was something in the hundreds times like something in the tens, and neither of us could do a times table nope. to figure it out. Nope. <laughs> we were like, um, we'll just go get my phone. <laughs> And, so and anyways, and that's how I became an accountant. So <laughs> thanks, everyone. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he bought her a $350,000 ring. Damn. Okay, Mark. Cash, I see you. Casual. <laughs> um, yeah, a ring more than, uh, you know, some people's homes. Anyways, so <laughs> True. on their honeymoon, which <laughs> takes place on a cruise ship, a.k.a. hell, um, yeah. <laughs> he kind of finds out about how she's like very like frigid. Like she yeah. doesn't want to have like sexual relations with him. Um, so at first he kind of respects her wishes, but he soon becomes obsessed with like controlling and dominating her and yeah. ends up raping her. So I'd love to break this scene down because it's, I feel like if we just say he ends up raping her, it's like there's a clear image that we get. But yeah. This is actually done in a way that isn't shown in movies a lot. Yeah. So I think it's, so it, so they're on this honeymoon mm-hmm. and she, you know, they're, I think the first night they're like, he's trying to like, you know, be like, okay, like, like let's go to bed or whatever. And he doesn't realize that she has like this thing, you know, about men yeah. at this point. And she has like a, a borderline panic attack about yeah. him touching her, and she's like, "I don't want to be touched like, yeah. ever by a man," and then is like cowering in a corner, and he's like, "Okay, calm down. Like, I'm not gonna touch you. Don't worry. Go to bed, and I'll just like stay out here. It's fine." And so then it has like this montage of them on this cruise where he's kind of trying to like break the ice a little bit and like mm-hmm. break the walls down and try to like bond. He's trying to like find stuff to like bond with her about. Yeah. Like, he's talking about like entomology and she's like not interested and then he's, he's like reading a book. he's like nope that's not gonna do it for you all right what else do i got <laughs> yeah he's like moving along to like marine animals and then she's like all right i don't care about that and he's like well we need to find something to bond over and talk about or whatever he's like well these are the only two interests that i personally have yeah. so this is gonna be difficult <laughs> and then um then they like fight they have like a big, bit of a fight and then they get to like the bedroom and she's like well close the door I want to go to bed like if you're not going to go to bed go back outside and he's like no I want to go to bed and then what happens is she's like no like don't come near me and he like rips her he basically like tears her robe off like she's got a robe and then she freezes like she gets fully frozen like mannequin yeah I mean you can just see her like dissociating like her eyes literally just go like blank yeah um it's actually amazing acting it's so good so good and it's so disturbing because you can just in that moment just see her just being like okay like she's not there no she's not not there she's fully blacked out like she's not there and she's just she's like it's like a wax figure yeah it's not a person and then he like basically puts her down in bed and you and then it you you can yeah you can he had you had he had sex with her like unconscious body or she's conscious but like you know she's not she's like i mean she's dissociated she's She's out of it she's She's... absolutely not there like it was not consensual (laughs) like it's very definitely not yeah and then um he wakes up in the next morning and he's somehow in his own bed because they have two twin beds. But he's somehow in his own bed. You know, because of the Hayes Code. <laughs> Hayes Code, which I guess we're going to just throw that in, I guess, for the beds. Um, and she's like not in the room. 
Yeah. So then we find her, you know, he's looking around the decks for her. He's not able to find her. And she's trying to commit suicide by drowning herself in the pool. Um, but he finds her kind of in time to resuscitate her. And she's like kind of upset about it because, you know, what he did was super wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think what he was like, why didn't you just jump overboard? And she was like, I wanted to kill myself, not be fish food. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was what she said. Yeah, and it's perfect. It's really good response. And this is the point where I'm like, it's what I mean by it's like, re- obviously, it's always been backwards to have, you know, rape and unconsensual sex, obviously. But the, the, what, the point and the character point that I'm like, this is really, really fucked up, but also really progressive at the same time is that his, like, that scene doesn't match up with his character in the rest mm-hmm. of the movie at all to me. Like, because like, his character as, like, a husband is, like, not something you would expect in the 60s. Yeah. Or, like, how much he actually does care about her in the movie and, like, the effort that he puts into trying to, like, help her deal with this trauma. Like, you don't see that in spousal relationships in movies in the 60s and 50s and 40s. And that's why I'm like, that's, that's like a really progressive like thing to show that a man is like willing to do. But then he like does these gross things and he like rapes his wife on their honeymoon. And you're like, oh man, Mark, why are you doing that, man? <laughs> like, it's really, really bad. Like, mm-hmm. and it, the, it, I just, I get that the point of that, what's really interesting. And I think like, there's no good way to do this because it's not right. Is that the point of that scene was not to make Mark look like a bad person, which it does. It makes him yeah. feel like kind of an icky person. The point of it was to further the plot line of Marnie's trauma and to exactly. show us that there's something there. But they did it in a way where it kind of ruined Mark's character, which I don't think was the, what they were trying to do. Like, I don't think that's the point because it doesn't fit in with the rest of his character at all. Yeah, but like, it's interesting. I was going to talk about this later, but so the screenplay was written by a woman. Oh, which was is it? like. Which is, like, very interesting to me. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think that makes a lot of sense in how they can get the character of Marnie so well mm-hmm. done. But there's some stuff in it where it's just... That's really interesting. Like, I that was unexpected a little bit. Yeah, right? Because I was yeah. like, oh, Jay. And then, of course, I was like, ah, oh, it's a man. Because it's always yeah. a man. But then it wasn't. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. And, yeah. and actually... Oh. One of the other writers that Hitchcock had wanted to write this script wouldn't because of the rape scene and was just like, I, you know, I'm not comfortable doing that. And so she agreed to do it, but basically felt that, like, ultimately Mark's character could redeem himself, which is why she was, like, willing to take the job. Um, Interesting. So that's kind of interesting because I feel like, you know, she's, let me see, I think I have a quote about it. I think, like, a way that I would have been able to get on board with Mark's Mm -hmm. character redeeming himself would have been if he rips her clothes off, sees that she disassociates, and then decides to put the robe back on her, which he does, but then he still lays her down in bed and rapes her. And I I think that if they had just stopped it there, that Mm -hmm. would have been, like, okay, he's realizing that there's something wrong and he's, like, not gonna you know, in the heat of angry passion, like, rape his wife, which is what he does, and I think if they had just maybe, I don't know what the, if that's, you know, obviously that's probably consistent with the book, that might have been a good place for them to just change something. To change it a little bit. No, I actually completely agree with you, and yeah, so I guess the, 
the writer Jay Preston Allen felt like it was really up to Sean Connery and his charisma to like make the audience forgive him. But I think part of the reason that this stayed in is that Hitchcock deemed that this scene was like vital for the story. And he was like very set on the rape scene being part of this film, which is like super interesting. And we'll kind of unpack Mm. like allegations against him from Tippi Hedren. But I just think it's interesting because the rape to me is not the vital part of the story. It's really her like repressed trauma from childhood. And I completely agree with you that I think there's other ways that they could have done it without him raping her. Because I agree, like it definitely changed my perception of him. And I don't, I don't think that it necessarily, it wasn't necessary and it just like furthered her trauma and like but it's not something that I would say like ended up being like resolved kind of like I don't it wasn't and it's kind of that thing where you're like the movie progresses and you kind of forget about it and you're like oh he's like you know he does actually care about her a lot and there actually is a lot there like it you know as much love as she can give there is Mm -hmm. between them they do love each other for the most part he clearly loves her a lot and and then you, you're like, yeah, he's actually, like, he's doing what he can to try to, like, help her, like, mm-hmm. move on and, like, do all these things as a husband, which is, like, pretty amazing. And then you remember that he raped his wife on his honeymoon, and you're like, oh, ew. <laughs> like, no, that's really, really bad. Yeah. And um, it, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I just, it really, it kind of put a stain on his character for me, which is a little, and, and if anyone can try to make it redeemable I guess it was gonna be Sean Connery with his charisma and he is pretty, yeah. you know he's a pretty like innocent looking person mm-hmm. <laughs> in the movie like he's not doesn't do anything else really bad it's just that yeah. scene and so that's why I feel like I'm like it doesn't fit with his character at all and it doesn't feel like it's a vital part of the movie like it could have no. been what would have fit with his character for me is if it would have he got to the point he ripped her robe off and then mm-hmm. we see the disassociation which I think that is a vital part oh of the movie. it's a very vital part but I think again it's interesting because I think as much as it is progressive in some ways I think that there's still very much this like objectification of women where oh, it's like yeah. you, you can get what you want and I think at this time like there were expectations of like yep. what your wife was supposed to do and like yep. Even if someone wasn't into it, you do it anyways. And I think that that's kind of, like, some of what we're seeing here. And I think that that yeah. also kind of feeds into some of, like, I think Alfred Hitchcock's issues and how he views women, which yeah. for a lot of, you know, it's not really as, like, an empowered, like, full person. It's kind of this, like, in a lot of cases, just, like, sexual object who, yeah, yeah. maybe they're witty and smart, but they don't really have their own agency. And right. I think we get, like, a really big dose of that with this film. I think you're, you're, that's a really, really good point that you make. And I think what's really interesting, and I'm glad you pointed it out because I didn't realize this or know this, mm-hmm. is that even in 1964, this scene was really controversial. Yeah. And I think that's really Super controversial. Yeah. Yeah. And I think had a man written this movie, it actually probably would have been worse like I don't think that this character I don't think that post this scene mm-hmm. we would have gotten the same character arcs that we we got with a woman writing this yeah. screenplay and I think you're right again I don't know what the book was like but I do think that I'm not sure exactly like how the treatment is different or the same to the book because obviously this was a part of the original novel mm-hmm. um but I I do think that there it creates like very very complicated characters but it's not 
character complication that I think like furthers the plot in any type of way it's no and I don't think it's character complication that empowers the woman at all oh no no it really just like traumatizes her more (laughs) yeah yes it does I mean it it kind of justifies like why she is the way she is for her like she yeah it justifies like that men are bad men are bad and she's acting a certain way and it's for good reason because even her own husband who's someone who is like out to help her and have the best you know best intentions for can Mm -hmm. still do this kind of a thing um so yeah i mean take that scene with what you will i guess with a grain of salt watching this movie but that is the one part of this movie where it's it's pretty hard to get through it and get past it i think in terms of the in terms of have feeling good about how the movie concludes and how it progresses um i will yeah. say it's still a very very good movie but uh yeah the scene is it it just doesn't feel the way that it they follow through with the rape it just doesn't feel right it doesn't feel like it clicks with the film no i agree and again i think it's so interesting that like hitchcock mm-hmm. felt like this was vital to the plot because yeah i don't think it is <laughs> no i don't think it is and i think it's like the MacGuffin, honestly it's <laughs> It's like the really dark, serious MacGuffin. Super dark MacGuffin. Well, like... I think we see this a lot in in Hitchcock films. Is that we see a lot of his own um, stuff about himself and his own life and what we later realized the kind of person Hitchcock was. We watching his movies back, you're like, oh, he's like putting a lot of his own like fetishes and weird kind yeah. of personality traits that aren't necessarily you know good in these films in rear window the voyeurism is like very very associated with like how he treated women and how mm-hmm. he viewed women and also in vertigo how jimmy stewart's character like dresses madeline and makes the second version of madeline look just like the first you know it's like all that stuff and that's what hitchcock did with his leading ladies and that yeah. was very common and i think yeah and we'll whenever we'll get to you know the tippy hedron stuff i think it's really important to break all that down because that's a yeah. whole interesting conversation too but um yeah i think you know that's this is a good you're right this is a very big dose of like not the best um moment of female empowerment that we see pretty common in hitchcock films for sure yeah this one is like not for women (laughs) no no it is not Not for for women at all (laughs) no um anyways so kind of in addition to all of her like aversion to sex and generally like troubled behavior their marriage also faces another threat from lil played by diane baker who is the sister of his first wife who's now deceased and obviously she clearly wants him she's hot for him and she views marnie as a rival that she can overthrow so again just to clarify lil is a she is like 17 or 18 yeah she is a child she is a baby she's a baby (laughs) she's a baby as moira rose would say (laughs) shout out yeah she is not an adult like she is a hundred percent it kind of immature (laughs) it kind of reminds me of in to catch a thief like the yeah the french girl yeah which is so uncomfortable it's just clearly it's a trope that he like has you know has a few times in his movies but it's yeah it's just super uncomfortable and again like there's a lot of like older guys getting like a lot of attention from like very young girls and i'm not a fan of it Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't like that at all. It's really, really gross. Yeah, it's yeah, uncomfortable. We need to shut that shit down. <laughs> so anyways, one day Lil is kind of eavesdropping on a conversation between um, 
between Marnie and Mark, and she kind of overhears that Mark has bought Strut's silence by paying off the money that Marnie stole. Mm-hmm. So Lil invites Strut to a party at the house because she's a little bee. <laughs> I will say, though, Mark is really dumb because Mark he... is. So has in a book so lil is like sleeping oh. around mark's room at one point and mark in a book like in just like a notebook that she looks through has just a bl- like a loose <laughs> sheet of paper with this checklist on it and the checklist is really incriminating for her it's super incriminating it's, it's like, like pay off strut check <laughs> check like, i was buy, like, like get money for six carat ring like like whatever oh my god it's so stupid i'm just like mark bro like what are you doing you know you're like ex or deceased wife's like sister is crazy and like mischievous like why are you having this like loose incriminating paper around <laughs> but also why do you love checklists so much mark like know yeah, when mark. something should or should not go on the checklist like <laughs> yeah keep that shit in your head mark i don't think you're gonna forget to pay off your wife's like stolen ten thousand. yeah i'm dollars. sure that that's top of mind for you i mean i'm like <laughs> a checklist person and i admit like i'll put things on the checklist that i've already done because i want to check it off and feel accomplished that is not one of the things that you put on the checklist, Mark. No, Mark. Come on, Mark. Get your shit together, Mark. Get your checklist game together. Anyways, yeah, Mark is, like, straight up just super dumb. And and at this point, like, Lil is just very intrigued. She listens in on a conversation between Marnie and her mom. Marnie had previously lied to Mark and said that her mom was dead. Um, and Lil overhears Marnie having a conversation with her mom, basically saying, like, she's going to bring her money and stuff like that um, and send it to the P.O. box. Um, and so Lil tells Mark and it's, she's just trying to like drive a wedge in their marriage and just be an absolute B. We hate her. Yeah. She is a huge B, big B energy for sure. And Mark then hires a private detective to like figure out if there is in fact a a mother that was hidden from him. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, but yeah. So Lil invites Strut to the, to a party um, at the house and the house Strut recognizes Marnie who outfoxed and humiliated him, um, and he, like, grudgingly kind of keeps it quiet when Rutland threatens to take his business elsewhere and kind of convinces his, and said, like, I'll convince my clients to do the same. So, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, Mark is blackmailing literally everybody left and right. (laughs) He's like, he's like, wait, gotta put it on the checklist. He's like, okay, blacklist (laughs) Rutland. Blackmailed strut. A blackmailed strut. He is blackmailed Marnie into marrying me. Check. Check. (laughs) Like read book on entomology. Check. Check. He's like learn more about wild animals. Also check. (laughs) He's like wait she's gonna love this fact I just found. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god. Learn about sexual perversions of female criminals. Check. Check. That is literally a book he was reading, and I'm sure we'll get to that later. But I just I had to just had to throw it out there. Of course he was. Anyways, so meanwhile, Marnie takes out Forio, who's her horse, out on oh, his yeah. first fox hunt. As the hounds kind of de- descend upon the fox with this, like, snarling pack, which is, like, not super cute. Marnie mm-hmm. sees this bright red jacket on one of the hunters and gets, like, it's a very, like, violent scene. Anyways, yeah, she so... She definitely goes into one of her, like, blackout trances. Her blackout trances. So the color triggers her, and she, like charges away from the woods like she's clearly super out of it like just not even paying attention to what's going on um she loses control of the horse and like can't 
ring him in. He's like heading for this high stone wall. Um, Morris breaks its It's brown really legs. sad, and they show it, and it's like really it's like sad. Awful. It's like yeah. For Yeah, and then you're like Marty gets like catapulted from the horse. I don't yeah. really care. I'm like no, we don't care. About the horse. We yeah. care about Forio. We are team yeah, we Forio about, here. We're team Forio for sure. Um, whoever wrote this clearly hates horses because this was just clearly. like animal cruel abuse. animal <laughs> abuse. So. He breaks his legs on the yeah, wall. Yeah, it's really sad. And then it's is, like, really, really writhing sad. in pain, so she has to shoot him. Um, Which, like, obviously, as someone who's already, like, pretty triggered at this point, like, this just kind of takes her, like, over the edge at yeah, this point. Yeah, and this is a really interesting moment because Lil shows up in, like, mm-hmm. in a moment of compassion randomly and is like, like, let me do that. Like, I won't, I'm not gonna let you do that. And then Marnie grabs the gun and just straight up shoots Forio herself. Yeah. And it's really, really intense. The scene is really intense. It's super intense. <laughs> so, I, think I will say, like, something, sorry to cut you off, oh, no. but one thing that I wanted to point out that I don't think we've pointed out yet is that the way throughout this movie they cut with, like, really violent music to complete silence is really jarring. It's super disorienting. <laughs> yeah, it's really disorienting. It's really, really good. It's really mm-hmm. well done. Um, and the Marnie theme, like her theme is really, really beautiful, but it's so loud. And then it just will cut to like random complete silence for and a long time. And the silence is like deafening. It's really intense. Yeah. It's super uncomfortable. So you're sitting there to kind of yeah. stew with it. And that happens mm-hmm. during this scene, which makes it, it extra uncomfortable and it disturbing. Does. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So anyways, so she shoots the horse. It's still armed with a gun. She heads to the safe and she's kind of going to just do, like, her no normal, like, modus operandi. She's going to steal from him and, and run away. Um, but... Is she kind of, like, in a blackout still? That's kind I of I think so. I because it's, like, this weird cut with, like, the money and then her. But I think it's also showing that, like, because she already owns it, like, she's... Oh, it kind that, of, like, okay. Because the way I got it was, like, oh, she already, like, oh, she, like cares about mark and that's coming through and so she can't steal his money but you're saying it's because it's already hers yeah i feel like it's we interpreted that scene differently that's yeah i kind of took it as like she because they're married like obviously the wealth is shared like it's not like satisfying to her to steal from some like you know what i mean because now it's it's, like different because she finally has like ownership but wow. in a lot of ways, like, she's unsatisfied because now it doesn't have, like, the same thrill because, like, it's hers. Wow. You're, so what we're saying here is I'm a romantic and you are hollow. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> because the way that I interpreted that was that her conscience was, like, coming in as, like, like show. this was the way that we were going to get... We, as an audience, were going to figure out that she actually does have feelings for Mark. Oh. Is that she couldn't steal his money. Like, she couldn't bring herself to steal <laughs> well, his money. Well, that's much more lovely. Well, no, that's very <laughs> interesting that we interpreted that scene differently. That's very, very fascinating. And I, I think you're right. Like, I think that is actually might be the reason that she can't steal the money. Well, audience, we will leave it up to you. you yeah, you tell us you what you think. We're curious. Um, but, but, yeah, I'm very curious what other people would think about that. But... The scene is really an interesting, like, how she plays this internal conflict Mm. of, like, her trying to take this money but, like, physically not able to take this money. It's very interesting the way that she plays it. Yeah, I mean, again, really interesting choices, what I wish we had had in Vertigo, because she takes it, she takes it there. Like, she goes places in this performance. Yeah, she definitely does not hold back, Tippy. 
No. This film is just, yeah, it's wild. My other favorite part is her dream where she's calling out. It's just like, she goes there. Mark then kind of attempts to discover the root of her compulsions, um, like just all of her weird nightmares that she's been having where she's like calling out and kind of saying these weird things. Um, and, and then it's her, about her mom. Like she calls yeah, out about her mom. Yeah. And like, yeah. And her odd phobias of thunderstorms of men and the color red. So he takes her to his mother's house in Baltimore where he demands kind of an explanation of this bad accident that he's kind of been able to like ensue. So before we get there though, oh, yes. the way that he figures it out and I think that again, like I want to really break the scene down because I think this this performance actually is probably my favorite. Besides it's the a good ending, one. it's probably my favorite part of the scene and it's really, it weirdly like really creeped me out a little bit. Like I was watching this kind of late at night. <laughs> it's really like this scene kind of creeped me out. So and so did the end, and we'll talk about that, yeah. too. But, we'll definitely um, talk about it. So they don't share... So after this whole, like, really traumatic day with her horse happened, and yeah. the money thing happened, and she doesn't take the money, and Mark catches her, and, um, you know, all this stuff, they, they're in bed. And I actually, I'm not sure if this happens before that or after that, but they're, they're in bed, in their... They have, like, a Jack and Jill bedroom. Like, yeah. They, like, shares a door, but they have separate rooms. And she's in her room, and she's having that nightmare, again, that you mm-hmm. were talking about. And he, like, I think he runs in. First, it cuts to, like, a book on his bedside table that's called, like, Sexual Deviations of, like, Female Criminals or something. Really yeah. strange. <laughs> Very, yeah. You know, just a and little then, light reading. Yeah, just a little light reading before bed. He's really trying to understand his wife. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? But um, he runs into her room, like, wakes her. Or, like, Lil comes in and, like, wakes her up because he doesn't want to touch her. Cause he yeah, because he's, like, like, freak out. Yeah, exactly. And um, so Lil wakes her up and leaves. And then they're sitting, Mark and Marnie are sitting there. And Mark is like, let's do this, like, word association game. He's like, like I learned this in this super fun book that I'm reading. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm going to play. He's like, he's like a self-made psychologist. Like, psychiatrist. Yeah. Oh, my God. And so he does this, like, word association thing and and she is joking with him about it because she's like this is really fucking stupid and she's like making a joke about it and everything mm-hmm. he says she'll like make a little joke and then he says something like sex like they're they're kind of going back and forth and then he said one of the words he says is sex and then she says like jack and jill adam and eve and then just like cuts to this like i'm gonna slap your filthy face or something like that yeah and, like it's really jarring like it's really weird and it freaks herself out like she freaks herself out and then, like, has this kind of breakthrough where she's, like, realizing that something's wrong with her. Yeah. And is, like, help, basically, like, help me, I need help. And But that scene, like, that performance and the way that that scene escalates, I thought was one of the best scenes of the movie. And it's really creepy, like, the way that... Because you're not... You don't know where it's going until that happens. No. And then... Well, and I think we've had, like, this, other like, moments yeah. where, like, she... Like, during the first thunderstorm where she kind of is having... Yeah. Like, she's kind of saying weird things, but she's, like, I think at that point kind of dissociated. Like, she's really out of it, and then he kind of brings it up later, and she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I think this is kind of the first time where she says something like that and is, like, oh, my God. like, Well, she's Yeah, she's fully conscious, and she's like, what's going on? Like, that's really weird. Like, where did that even come from? And that's where we're like, oh, something's, like... Yeah, because the other times when he's tries to, like, bring it up, like, you can tell she doesn't want to talk about it, but she also, I think it freaks her out because she doesn't know what he's talking about, because I don't think she's realizing that she's having these, like, 
kind of blackouts or these disassociation moments. Yeah. And um, this one is really weird because she's super manic when she's playing this game with him. Yeah. And is, like, kind of making a joke about it and then fully, like, has this really sharp turn to this, like, really dark place. And she's fully conscious when she does it and it really freaks her out. And it's played so well. Like, this scene is really, really good. And so so good. Yeah, and so this is where she kind of, I think, like, she is, like, at this point consenting and agreeing to, like, okay, like, we need to go talk to my mom. Like, he's, like, we're going to talk to your mom, and she yeah. doesn't, like, argue until they get there, and she, like, won't get out of the car. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, Which is fair, because her mom's fucking psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah, there's, uh, it's fully raining. It's, like, full-blown thunderstorm. So, you know, she's already a little triggered because yes. it's a thunderstorm, and, oh, um. God, this scene is so good. <laughs> It's so intense. So it's really intense. It's the one of the best acting like scenes I've seen in a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's amazing. So basically, he kind of demands an explanation of like the bad accident that um, Bernice suffered. He has like been able to get a hold of reports, yeah. um, like police reports. He knows what happens. He knows what he, happens, but, but he's, he's trying to get Marnie. Yeah, to, he's trying. Yeah, he's trying to get Marnie to like kind of relive the memory and like process it I think he's trying to get her yeah I think she's fully suppressed it so I think in order like he can't just tell her I think she has to remember it exactly for her to like move forward like deal with it she has to fully remember it herself yeah and so he's yeah he basically does it in a way where he tries to get her to like relive it and relive her mom like kind of confirm yeah and like finally kind of come clean about what happened that she's like also very much part of the reason Marnie is uh she never let Marnie like process this properly yeah because I I mean I think part of it is probably because she hadn't processed it no you know it's like it's generational trauma at this point so yeah and it's also generational differences in how it's dealt with like mom really suppressed it but in a way where she's like outwardly like a functioning person but clearly she like can't touch her own daughter like she can't like give her own daughter affection yeah, when I think it's like, you know, well, anyways, we'll get into it. So basically, like, he he knows that the mom was making her living as a prostitute, and some of her clientele were, like, sailors who were frequenting Baltimore shipyards. So Marnie ends up reliving the night when she was six year old, years old, and one of her mother's clients approached Marnie as she cowered on the sofa, frightened by thunderstorms, um... Bernice, like, reacts to the sight of this drunken sailor crossing her daughter by attacking him frantically. Yeah, he's basically... I don't think they're allowed to show this, but I think the implication is that he's, like, Is that he's molesting her. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, like, terrified. And so, um... Marnie sees... Yeah. yeah, Marnie sees the mom, like, struggling with this man. She goes to help her mom and strikes him on the head with a fireplace poker and kills him. And there's blood just, like, everywhere. Everywhere. (laughs) It goes... It goes from being like one drop to, <laughs> to like, like literally to just like gushing. It's like, <laughs> like oh my yeah, god! It's like the shining vibes. In yeah, this, it's in this wild. And there's just, I mean, what they could not show in Psycho is on full display here because there is just blood literally fucking everywhere. And also, just, we didn't say this for people that haven't seen this movie is in color. It's filmed in technicolor. It's in color. So the blood it's is not only is in color, it's in technicolor. The blood is bright fucking red. Very red. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, right, this is a right. lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so he's like wearing this white uniform, but there's just blood fucking everywhere. So now, oh, yeah, like, that's the other thing is like white 
like something some white something white like also freaked her out i think too at one oh, point like a white coat or oh, oh she no no with she she would say in the dream like the man in white or something oh like, don't touch my mom like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man in white or something like that i remember that because it was a sailor's outfit i remember yeah like, so oh, that's it all comes yeah. full circle anyway circle so at this point, Bernice explains that she became pregnant with Marnie as a teen after she'd kind of been... So this is also super fucked up. So she had been lured into having sex by the promise of her date's basketball sweater, which... Yeah, she's like, I got the basketball sweater, but I also got fucking you, Marnie. <laughs> and so that you can tell... Marnie was an accident, basically. Yeah, basically. And, like, yeah. she was... she was, And I think this is interesting because it's like she wanted something from men and had to use sex to get it. And I think that that's kind of the beginning of like her issues with men and like feeling like you know everybody's just kind of using each other because I think that's obviously like what was modeled for her and this was very much like a almost like an exchange of goods like she got what she wanted which was this jacket and this guy got what he wanted um and so I think she kind of was able to like you know justify it as like you know not something out of love or not something out of like feelings it's just it's it's like an a financial exchange kind of thing right anyways so yeah, she tells her daughter that she claimed responsibility for the sailor's death and fought to keep the authorities from placing Marnie in a foster home because the truth of the matter is that Marnie's the only thing that she's ever loved, but yeah. she, I think she just, like, wasn't able to show it because, again, she hadn't processed her own trauma. I think she was, like, probably scared and felt like she, she probably just didn't have, like, the skills or skill set or, like, I don't know, like, she just, I don't know. Wasn't. Yeah, and this part was really interesting to me, and I wondered, I was like, okay, this is an interesting contrast, and I think maybe if you might have a different interpretation, but the reason that they did this ending, the way that they ended the scene was to kind of show that, like, Mark is actually the only one that can, like, show Marnie, like, proper affection, was yeah. that even after this whole breakthrough, Marnie is, like, putting her head on her mom's lap, her mom still is like, get your head off of my knee, you're hurting me. Yeah. And she can't, like, she still cannot show her affection. Yeah. Even after admitting all of this stuff and yeah. getting clean and having this breakthrough, she's still, the mom still is not, it's kind of this plot twist in that it's not the mom that's going to be the one that, like, helps Marnie move forward and show her yeah. this affection. It's actually, like, Mark, who was there all along, trying to, like, mm-hmm. help her along the way and do this. And I wonder if... I don't know. I just found that really interesting. Even after all of this, like the mo- her mom still couldn't do it. Like she still couldn't do sh- what Marnie needed as mm-hmm. as a young girl, which she kind of is. I mean, the scene where Marnie is remembering what happened yeah. is it's, super creepy because it's she super creepy. fully is has the voice of like a six year old girl. Yeah, I mean, she's reliving her the experience as like a six year old, and they also yeah. cut to the scene, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Whereas I think before, and I could be wrong, like I'm interested to get your take. I think that it would have just kind of been more of her voiceover acting like yeah. a child, but I think that like because it's like at the end of the Haze Co, they're actually able to like add in kind of more of the like flashback piece and it's interesting like the juxtaposition because it's like her and then cutting to like scenes from that night whereas don't you think like before and I think we kind of saw this at the end of Psycho where yeah he kind of dissociates and is acting weird but like they can't show anything more than that and I feel like with this they were kind of able to like 
realize it in a way that they couldn't before. I think you're so right. I, th- I totally agree in that, like, if when you look at Psycho, which is only four years before this movie mm-hmm. came out, but still Hayes Code is being, like, pretty much enforced in, the, in terms of, not in terms of violence as much, but I think in terms of, like, showing, like, sexual aspects of film. Yeah. Or any type of theme that had to do with any type of, like, sex or psychological perversion, quote-unquote, or whatever. Um, and in Psycho, what they do at the end is they have that voiceover where it's like it's just cut like close up Mm -hmm. on Norman and it's like his mom him as his mom like doing that voiceover which I think works really well for that movie because it makes that really creepy but I think what we would have gotten had this movie Marnie come out you know a few years prior if Hayes Code had required them to change is just a full close up of Marnie having this like full blown psychotic breakthrough as a six year old and I think it would have been creepy, but I don't think it... Like, I think it would have been, like, okay, we're, like, feeding into the creep factor of this movie, mm-hmm. which is, like, I guess a fine, like, financial or, like, you know, get audiences and to see this movie. But I think in terms of story, the way that they do it, the way that it is actually filmed in the movie makes way more sense. And I think it hits yeah. harder. Well, and again, I feel like that feels very modern to me, too, the way that that whole scene is composed with, like, the Mm -hmm. flashbacks. Like, I think that's something that we see all the time in, like, even television today. Like, that's... And I don't know that that's something that was necessarily done a ton at that point. I could be wrong, but I think that that's pretty progressive in the way that it was handled. It was. It is. And I... So, um, I actually know the answer to this because uh, I would love to do a special episode on this movie at some point, but (laughs) the first movie that incorporated flashback into the actual um, storytelling structure was Double Indemnity. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, that's the first movie that ever did that. So, 1944... Yeah, I think that movie came out in 44. I'm pretty sure. And um, that was the first time that had ever been done. And so it oh was God. still into 1964 that wasn't like a popular plot device that was mm-hmm. used a lot. And so I think it was very modern, especially to show something like this and to, sh- to do it in a way that's like you're reliving um, a child. You're seeing what she's seeing, basically, yeah. is what's going on. Like we're exactly. not just seeing her reacting to yeah. this, like, well, sec- this um, psychological trauma that she has to be like reliving to break through. We're actually... Yeah going through it with her and seeing what she's seeing. Exactly. I think it really heightens the drama. And I think as like an audience member, like it makes you a lot more sympathetic because to your point, you are experiencing the trauma with Marnie. Yeah. Like I think that Absolutely. it's, it makes it a lot more real. So a- anyways. Yeah. The scene brilliant. Is so the scene is it's so It's really intense. hard. It's like, like, I was done and I was like, yes, Tippy. Like I feel you. Like you and I are both exhausted <laughs> after that. You're like, girl, you and me both. Um, but anyway, so the way that it ends is she's kind of been, like, she's now aware of her, like, repressed, repressed traumatic memories. Um, but she kind of believes that she's capable of renouncing crime and sustaining, like, an intimate relationship. So she and Mark ride back to the family estate. So, yeah. So super interesting ending. It ties up relationship with mom pretty well in that mm-hmm. I think that we're so, to assume that, like, Marnie has fully moved on from trying to, like, get her mom's, like, approval. But um, what it doesn't do, though, is that it doesn't really tie up, like, okay, I've, bro- I've had, like, a breakthrough. I'm all better now. It kind of is almost the beginning of, like, trying to deal with what's going on. It's, like, just yeah. the first breakthrough. And the way that it ends is, like... Uh, so throughout the whole movie, Mark basically gives her these, like, ultimatums. Is like, either you're gonna 
confess to your crimes and you're going to go to prison or you're, we're going to try to like buy off all these people that you, um, mm-hmm. like robbed or you're just going to like learn to live with me and you know, yeah. I'm going to help you through this basically. And so but when she never gives an answer, she's really conflicted, all this stuff. The end of the movie is basically like her being like, I like, don't leave me. Like I'm, I want to go with you. Yeah. And so then they ride off together. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of not a conclusion. Like, it's a really weird, like, I didn't, it wasn't like the movie ended and I was like, oh, I'm comfortable with that ending. Like, I was very uncomfortable with like, yeah. how that movie, it doesn't feel like it wrapped up some stuff that I think, like, needed to be wrapped up. But maybe that was the point, because it's kind of like, the point of, you know, like, the point of psychological trauma like that is that it never does get wrapped up. And that's the yeah. Point, I guess is like you can you can learn to live with it and move on in certain aspects of your life that might be healthier for you to move on with in Marnie's case you know not seeking her mother's approval in like very toxic ways um which I think was stemming a lot from like or what her her like compulsive like kleptomania and like theft was like because she was trying to get money to her mom and like get her mom's approval essentially um coupled with like this trauma that was triggering it but I think what you know you can move on from things like that but I think there's like the point that it makes you feel uncomfortable and that you're like okay this is a breakthrough for her but it's not like a fully like we're wrapped up I'm gonna be a loving in a loving relationship that I can give my full affection to my husband and he's gonna be great and I'm gonna be great and everything is happy like that's not how this movie ends at all Mm -mm. it ends with like okay we have this mutual like kind of respect for each other now and she clearly like loves him and he definitely loves like we can see that he definitely loves her for Mm -hmm. you know for all intents and purposes but um it it's it's kind of like a beginning of like we're gonna try to like coexist with this trauma now that we know that it's there and we don't have to like you know hide it or keep secrets or things like that so I think that's kind of it it's an uncomfortable ending but it's realistic I think yeah no I agree I think that that's that's very true because it's not like if you have a trauma like that it's like oh and now I'm good I'm fixed now it's it's something you have to con- I mean I think you can be aware of it but it's something you have to continue to work through for the rest of your life <laughs> I think that's what's really interesting about Hitchcock's later films and I think probably starting in the mid 50s to you know the end of his career is that he his, the way his movies end consistently starting in the mid 50s again, through the rest of his career, is that we don't get a Hollywood ending, per se. Like, we no. sometimes get something, even in something like To Catch a Thief, it, they end up together and they end happy, but then Grace Kelly throws in that line of, like, oh, mother's gonna love it here, and then he's yeah. like, oh, fuck, and then yeah. it ends. So it's like, there always has to be something that makes it, it kind of brings the movie down to earth, back down to earth and makes it, you're like, oh, there's, this is, like, maybe a realistic way that this story would end and that's I think Marnie ends it not it's not satisfactory but I think it's very realistic yeah no I love that yeah so um yeah I mean this movie Tippi Hedren is is really great and I think you know we can unpack a lot of her um issues um, that are very notorious with alfred hitchcock as well we'll talk about it but before we do one thing that i thought was really interesting that i'm interested to get your point of view on is so grace kelly had actually accepted this role 
Yeah, at this point, yeah, she was Princess Grace at this point. She had accepted it and then had to kind of back out of it. Um, But it's interesting because I just can't imagine her as Marnie. No, I can't either. So I actually did know that she accepted a a hitch. I know that there there's a Mm -hmm. there is a you know famous story about her after she becomes princess. It's very famous that you know Grace Kelly all she ever wanted to do her whole life was be an actress. And, mm-hmm. like, she, it was actually, like, pretty hard for her to, like, have to give that up. I think there was a lot of, like, she never publicly talked about it, but there was a lot of assumption that Prince Rainier, like, wouldn't let her act. Um, yeah. And she kind of accepted that gracefully because she definitely really loved him, so she kind of, like, gave that up. Mm-hmm. And then I did know that there was a, there was a tension in that, like, she really wanted to... Um, do a Hitchcock movie like she got a role like he offered mm-hmm. her a role and that she accepted it and there was like some tension in their marriage about it I didn't know it was this movie it was this that's one. really interesting can you imagine had she done this regardless of whether you think she would be good in this role or not if this subject matter was something Princess Grace of Monaco was in like what yeah. that would have looked well, like well I I think that's a big part of the reason that she wasn't able to take this role is just because the subject matter is obviously pretty extreme and I feel like that was really difficult for her because I feel like as she like again she was a good actress and that's what yeah she wanted to be an actress like that's what she always wanted to do this is a juicy role like this is a really good super juicy role yeah really really good role so I can't like I can imagine like her getting this after you know five six years or no probably like 10 closer to 10 years of not Maybe not quite ten, but you know, many years mm-hmm. of being her last out of role acting. Was to catch a thief. So yeah, I no, think you're I right. think her, I think her last. Oh role no, you're high, right. Is High Society, but it was that you're was right. like the year after to catch a thief. Yes. Her last Hitchcock movie was to catch a thief. Yeah, and then, but um, so that was maybe like what fifty six or something. I'm yeah, like so you're right. So. Almost, almost ten years. So about eight, eight years. years, and you know, eight years out of the job that you love, and you get this role, and like you know. <laughs> this is a great role. Like, this is a really, really, like, opportunity to do some, like, pretty serious inward acting. Um, I think that she could have pulled it off. I don't think that she would have been able to tap into this, like, really raw internal complex, like, flawed trauma that Tippi Hedren was able to tap into. Yeah. I could see Janet Lee doing this role. I can too. Almost as well. Again, it's really, again, hard for me, though, to see someone other than Tippi Hedren doing this. I think she's very underrated as an actress. I was actually trying to look up her... Um, everybody knows her, but she's literally only famous for birds in this movie. Like her, other, I was yeah. looking up her filmography, and like she hasn't really done much. And I think we kind of talked about this in terms of... Um, Janet Lee too in that you get these women that are in these really powerful roles that you would expect to like catapult their careers to more you know interesting roles like this you get pigeonholed into these like um certain character types and like typecast basically and this role just wasn't com- this type of character just wasn't common enough for um you know actresses to get these kinds of roles like willy-nilly or a lot or all the time so I think we see the same thing in that you don't see a big you know career jump like you don't see a lot of roles coming in after this even though these are some of the most like raw and beautiful performances that you'll see in film yeah agreed well and we'll talk about it too because there's actually something I think else going on with 
to be Hedren and like why she didn't advance. I think maybe with Janet Lee, she really did get typecast. And I think that was a film that was kind of before its time in some ways and Mm. did allow, like did really typecast her and not allow her to create other filmography. But I think Janet or to be Hedren is like a little bit different. So what happened with Tippi Hedren then? So in 2016, she released a memoir that kind of revealed what it was like to work with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, she says that he was obsessed with her and that he sexually assaulted her on the set of Marnie when she was alone in her dressing room. Um, she says that he grabbed her and put his hands on her, um, that it was sexual, it was perverse, and it was ugly, and I couldn't have been more shocked and repulsed. The harder I fought him, the more aggressive he became, and then he started threatening her, um, as if he could do anything to me that was worse than what he was doing at that moment. Um, when she finally fought him off, yeah, he promised that he would ruin her career, so. Oh, wow. So, it was pretty intense, um, there were other, like, instances, too, he tried to assault her in the back of a limo, um, he tried to kiss her, and I, and then he also tried to assault her later on a soundstage. She asked, mm-hmm. He asked me to touch him, and I'd resisted the temptation to slap him, and she just turned and walked away. She tried to keep it, like, professional. She just was, like, pretty cool to him. Um, but at this point, I think he had kind of decided to, like, basically ruin her reputation to make sure that she never got another working role. Yeah, I did know that there was that. That's a pretty famous yeah that but I didn't know the kind of extent of it and you know that's real that is a such a typical Hollywood story and that's, yeah. you know that's one of the things and like you and I discussed this when we were talking about doing this podcast um when we were starting this podcast is like you and I both love Hitchcock movies and we love old movies but mm-hmm. there's a lot of darkness in in old Hollywood and yeah I think that um there's a lot of like the underbelly of old Hollywood that wasn't the glitz and glamour and the yeah. kind of like filthy seediness of some of the people that we revere. Yeah. Um, is is real and it exists and I think that you and I were really adamant both that we wanted to like not only discuss how much we love these Hitchcock films, but kind of how um awful and, you know, kind of unprofessional and seedy of a person that he actually was especially to tippy hedron and i know that we you and i talked a lot about like when we were going to be doing the tippy hedron movies because we wanted to have a pretty clear um way and idea of like discussing that because it's a pretty hard thing to talk about because it's it's complicated and it's a complicated thing for people that watch film and that love film like us and that we grew up with these hitchcock movies and they're they're amazing films and you get these Mm -hmm. brilliant performances and you have you have characters or you have actresses like Grace Kelly or Janet Leigh or um, I don't know who else did he like Kim Novak who actually or even Marie Saint even in North by Northwest who act, who never like they talked about how controlling he was but never had like an issue with him. They actually mm-hmm. were pretty good. Fr- I think Grace Kelly was pretty good friends with him. Yeah. And um, then you have Tippi Hedren's side of the story, which is like, no, you know, that controllingness that he, that all those other women talk about, he took that to an obsessive level with her and he took it to an assaultive level with her. And he was very, I mean, he was criminal with her. I mean, he assaulted her and tried to sexually assault her probably multiple times. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's worth talking about in that, like, she is probably could have been one of the best actresses of her generation. Um, Yeah. And you know it that that's based on two movies (laughs) like that like that's based on two performances of hers well it almost kind of feels like um um 
Oh my God, what was the name of Roman Polanski's wife? I mean, obviously the circumstances oh, Sharon are very Tate. different. Yeah, yeah, because I mean Sharon Tate, I think was kind of like almost similar in that now I think we really recognize those performances as super iconic, but yeah. in the moment they're not necessarily super revered. But yeah. it's careers that are kind of like cut short, and I think mm-hmm. she made a point to not let Hitchcock break her, and fully understood that by not sleeping with him she was ruining her career she still had one movie left in her contract which never got filled and he basically told her that she would never work again in hollywood and she said that's fine with me yeah <laughs> i don't care um, for her and that yeah. makes me love and respect her so much more yeah. and i think like unfortunately i think that all of that trauma that she went through with him um she could tap into that for this movie Definitely. But I just think it's so interesting. And I mean, again, I I don't think that she ever really spoke publicly about this. I think there was speculation, but until her memoir came out and she actually actively addressed it, like, I don't think people really understood how bad it was. Um, But I do think it's interesting how much these stories kind of mimic his actions. Yeah, 100%. Um, And it is just very interesting that it it's like, oh, it makes sense that you were able, that you even picked these stories to begin with because, you know, this is something that you were doing to women or this aligned with kind of how you viewed women or how you mm-hmm. think about women um, and in, like, the way that you portray, portray women and, like, a lot yeah. of relationships on screen. So I, yeah. I just find it super interesting, like, the parallels between, especially this film and then his actions towards yeah, to Yeah, and I often. think when we look at also the the way that his male characters are portrayed, you can mm-hmm. definitely see his own alter ego and the man that he kind of wishes yeah. he was. He's, you know, a, like not an attractive Yeah, like, exactly. Man. And all of his leading men are these, like, dashing, romantic, yeah. like, very suave, well, and I same think kind of character A guy. lot of times we kind of allow it or it feels okay because they are attractive, but the ha- behavior that they are portraying is... Mm-hmm. Lecherous in a lot of ways, and it's really, it's really derogatory and like Mm -hmm. frankly abusive towards women. But because they're beautiful, it's like we can still we kind of or there's you know enough. I I think he does a good job too, and the writers maybe that he chooses too of like even in this role giving Sean Connery enough good points that we still kind of like him at the end of the day. Even yeah, though the, he did something that was really... You know what I mean? But it is yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, 100%. The rape like I, is the only thing he does that is bad. Yeah. But it is so bad that it's hard. Yeah. It, it's even Sean Connery, and I think that was very specific casting because they knew that that was going to be a thing, a problem, and a thing that people were going to have like a hard yeah. time moving past. Was, he was cast for that reason, but even with him cast in that role, it's like it's still... You can kind of get there in the end, but you still are kind of like why did he do that? Like, yeah. he, even when she's asleep and having her nightmare, he won't touch her because he's worried she's going to freak out. But then earlier he raped her. It doesn't make sense at all. So, I mean, it, yeah, it's a really interesting point that you made earlier that Hitchcock thought the scene was super vital. The rape scene was super vital because I, I completely disagree. I, I think yeah. it actually, I think it actually is a weak point in the movie, to be honest. I think it yeah. could have been handled differently. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Yeah, I think the conversation about Tippi Hedren is one that should be discussed a little bit more because it was one of the original, like, her speaking out coincides with, like, the Me Too movement. Her memoir, yeah. I think, coincides with the Me Too movement. And clearly that behavior in Hollywood, um, not uncommon when Hitchcock was doing that. That was no. 
very common, especially in the studio system with studio heads, super, super common situation, still super common, probably up, probably now, maybe not as much because it's, it's way more like people are actually taking action against that. And what Mm -hmm. we saw with like Harvey Weinstein's trial and things like that, but that was going on until recently. I mean, that behavior is not uncommon. And I think it's just another example of like, he's in a, he's a man in a position of power and he took the opportunity to ruin a really, really bright young actress's career and she did something that was really brave and unusual in that she was like yeah do that ruin my career I'm not ruining my dignity for you yeah exactly exactly we love Tippi Hedren that's a mic drop moment anyways so (laughs) yeah well that was Marnie I, I yeah overall I think that this is a great film it's I think it's you know it's a really strong one again it there's I think it I think it depicts what this kind of obviously neither of us have been through anything like this so we can't speak but what I think it's a very honest depiction of how this kind of trauma would play out I think it's actually like the way that Tippi Hedren plays this character is pretty realistic yeah and even though there's some like you know, like some Freud, like kind of yeah. some of the Freudian bullshit that they play into. Big I actually Freudian think bullshit. I think that overall, it's like a more nuanced approach to psychology mm-hmm. that we haven't necessarily seen from Hitchcock before. I think he tried mm-hmm. to in other places, but didn't quite get there. This to me feels a little bit more like fully formed. Yeah. Um, and I think I again, amazing performances. Um, and overall just, you know, a really interesting film, especially knowing like the context with Tippi Hedren. I think that, um, it's just fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, well, I think that's a great place to end it. There you have it. (laughs) Yeah. So we, yeah, love this movie. I actually really like this movie a lot. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I think I've only seen part of it too. So it was really Mm -hmm. nice to rewatch it. I really enjoyed rewatching it. Um, but I think kind of on that note, and I think there's just more, so much more to discuss about Tippi Hedren. So next week, I think it would be a great idea for us to discuss birds. The birds. <laughs> the birds. Um, the first Hitchcock movie I have ever seen. And I have not seen it oh. since. I watched it when I was like 10. So I'm really excited to read wow. it. Well, as someone who watched it somewhat recently, the end is like very disappointing, but the rest of it's pretty good. I don't remember the end. I'm very excited to rewatch it. So it'll be fun. And um, yeah, we're going to watch Birds. And again, double shout out to Robin. She found a great cocktail for us. It's called The Raven. So. Oh my God. Yes, (laughs) I can't wait. Well, it um, includes a lot of the weird uh, liqueurs that we have already purchased. Oh, wow. Even better. Sara, I found a cocktail that had like a violet liqueur and I was like no we can't <laughs> we, <laughs> we can but I was like maybe let's work through like 10 of the other weird liqueurs that we got and then yeah we'll I have back. a lot of blue curacao that I need to like get through there's only so many Mai Tais a person can drink no drink more Mai Tais oh my god the Amaro <laughs> is like what's hard for me because it's so strong on its own that I'm like Very I don't know strong. what to make this <laughs> We'll have to look up, like, some Amaro cocktails. I'm like, should I just drink it straight as, like, a nightcap before bed? Like, I don't really know. Is that a thing you can do? Yeah, it is. Amaro is, like, a thing people would just drink, like, by itself, so. All right. It's very strong. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a vibe, but you do you. (laughs) 
Amazing. But well, and if you, uh, again, because we are shameless, if you enjoy listening to this, please leave us a comment on your favorite podcast streaming service. Give us a like on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we like the attention, so. <laughs> That's like, why we're doing this. <laughs> Just kidding. Shout out, to, shout out to all of you guys who like to listen to our our voices. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much. Um, and new episodes dropping basically every Monday. Yeah, and we post fun stuff on our Instagram. Uh, we post lots of film stills and cocktail stuff. So follow us on Instagram and um, get all of our weird spooky updates there. <laughs> So, um, join us next week for The Buds. Uh, I can't wait. All right. Cheers! Cheers.